The Bible is full of many wonderful stories, and the Bible has one big story. And as we've been going book by book through the Bible, we've been talking about both. We've been looking at the stories, and we've been talking about how these stories point to the story. Another way we could say it is like this. There are a lot of human authors who wrote the different books and stories of the Bible, but we also believe there's ultimately one divine author of the whole book. And because of that, we expect and we look for a certain amount of continuity and unity. And we've been talking about this central theme that runs throughout the pages of the Bible, this theme of God the King and His kingdom. And today we're going to look at one of the great stories of all time, uh, the story of Esther. It has all the elements of an incredible story. It's got a great hero named Esther. Uh, There's even a romantic aspect. There's a terrible villain, one of the worst in the Bible, maybe the worst in the Bible. Uh, Significant conflict, significant tension. There's also irony, plot twists. There's comedy. And it ends in a good way. It ends on a good note. And and the book also tells us uh, about this uh, festival that's continued to celebrate today, uh, the festival called Purim. And so we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about how this story points to the big story. So let's look at maybe the most significant passage in Esther. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. If you were able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Esther 4, verses 13 through 16. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of God. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the king's kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessings on us as we look at this fascinating story. We know that it is not merely a story for us to enjoy, so we pray you would use it in our lives to increase our faith so that we become more like Esther and Mordecai. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the major themes of this book is the silent sovereignty of God the King. And one of the interesting aspects of this book is that God is never mentioned or referenced explicitly. Uh, In fact, this has caused some people to say, maybe this book doesn't belong in the Bible. Uh, Because all the other books at least mention God explicitly. Uh, But he's clearly present in the story. The key is it's just not always obvious. It's a little more subtle. He's not working miraculously in the same kind of way he does in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, there's no doubt. You see him, you hear him, everyone sees and hears him. God's people, those who are not God's people. Uh, The book of Esther is a little more subtle. And I'm referring to it as as silent sovereignty. Now, that doesn't mean he's less God. It doesn't mean he's less sovereign. It doesn't mean he's less in control. It doesn't mean he's less at work. It's just not quite as obvious. 
But I want to try to bring it out and demonstrate that it's obvious by just going chapter by chapter and showing you the, the silent, sovereign hand of God at work throughout this story. So let's begin in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we begin with a king. His name is Ahasuerus. He's the king of Persia. His Greek name is Xerxes. And so if I ever have the option, I'll use the name Xerxes because it's a little easier to pronounce. Uh, This story takes place during the same general time period as Ezra and Nehemiah. So God's people have been exiled to Babylon. Persia has risen to power over Babylon. The Persian kings are friendly toward God's people and allow them to return. And this specific story takes place after the temple has been rebuilt, but before Ezra and Nehemiah have returned. And in chapter 1, the king, King Xerxes, gets rid of the queen, Queen Vashti, and therefore he needs to find a new queen. And we can look back and see the sovereign hand of God at work. If he didn't need a new queen, then Esther wouldn't become the queen. And therefore she wouldn't be able to play the role that she plays. But she does become the queen, and this is the key event of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. He could have chosen any woman. I read one place that said perhaps as many as 1,000 women were brought to him, this sort of contest. And of of 1,000 women, he chooses Esther. I wonder why. God is sovereignly at work raising Esther up to this important, pivotal position. And we've seen this theme of God working through the hearts of the Persian kings, the pagan kings God uses to accomplish His purposes. And we see it again here in this story. In chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, Esther's cousin, whose name is Mordecai, which I think is a really cool name. Anybody looking for a cool baby boy name? Mordecai, you might consider it, right? Uh, Mordecai happens to be in this particular place, this alley, where he overhears two of the king's men conspiring together against the king, somehow to take out the king. And Mordecai hears it and relays this to Esther, who then relays it to the king, and the king is saved. And this is going to gain favor for Mordecai and Esther in the king's eyes. And that's going to be very important as we keep going in the story. But just consider... Why did Mordecai happen to be that particular alley where he could overhear this particular conversation that would save the king? The silent sovereignty of God at work. In chapter 3, the villain of the story named Haman gets promoted to a very high position. Number 2. He's in number 2 just under the king. And, And people bow down to him, therefore. But there's one man who won't. Mordecai won't. And it says because Mordecai was a Jew... He wasn't willing to bow down to this man, Haman. And this makes Haman very angry. Angry enough to kill him. But he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people, which is all of the Jewish people. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So when it says the whole kingdom, that would include Jerusalem at this time. So this is the age-old threat. The serpent, the seed of the serpent wants to crush the seed of the woman. 
Here it is, right here, Genesis 3.15. It's the conflict. This is, this is a pawn of Satan. Haman wants to destroy God's people, kill them, annihilate them. And there's an edict that goes out. And the king signs off on it. I think and, and we'll, we'll later find out, not really fully understanding what he's signing off on. He signs off on this edict to kill all the Jewish people. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Have we heard about this conflict before in the Bible? An attempt to kill all of the Jewish people? We've heard about it before. Pharaoh, and we hear about it later on in history as well. This is a constant conflict. Well, in chapter 4, Mordecai gets word to Esther and says, Esther, you got to warn the king about Haman and his plan. And Esther says, I don't know about that. If I go interrupt the king, you know, no, nobody's supposed to interrupt the king, not even me. You only go to the king when he summons you. And she says, I may die. And Mordecai says, if, if Haman is successful, you're going to die anyway. Number one. And number two, God's going to be faithful to His people and His promise. So He's going to deliver His people. The question is, who's He going to use? And so He's put you in this position for this time, for this purpose. This is why you're where you are. So be faithful. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Great verse. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He brought you here, this place, this time, for this purpose. Be faithful. And Esther says, okay. Tell everybody to start fasting. Three days and three nights. I think it's interesting it doesn't say pray. She doesn't say tell everybody to pray. It's a little more subtle. We know they're praying. We know that's what's behind it. Just like we know God is present in the story, though He's not explicitly mentioned. We know they're praying. It's just—it's subtle. It says they're fasting. And then she says, after this three days, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. I'll go to the king. I'll do what you're asking. If I die... I die. And Esther here is an incredible example of faithfulness. She, she put faithfulness to God ahead of her own life. She didn't value her life more than she valued faithfulness to God. It's a great example to follow. Value faithfulness to God above everything, even your own life. And if you do, God will use you in incredible ways, just like He uses Esther in incredible ways. In chapter 5, Haman plans to kill Mordecai and he builds this large wooden structure, like a beam or a gallows, to hang Mordecai by. It says it's 50 cubits high. It's, that'd be about 70 feet, 5 feet, uh, which I read somewhere would be the equivalent of like two school buses stacked on top of each other. So it's really big construction. You think, why? Why do you need it to be this tall and this big? I think the answer is he's trying to absolutely publicly humiliate him. That's the goal. Send a message. A public spectacle, not just killing, killing in a public way. So that's the plan. That's Haman's plan. But in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The king was unable to sleep. I wonder why. You think he just maybe wasn't sleeping well lately, you know? Didn't take NyQuil or something like that? God is at work. God is in control. And God is the one who's keeping him awake. And he says, you know what I think I'm going to do since I can't sleep here at night? I'm going to go back and look through some of my old records. 
some of my reports. So he goes back to study the old records, and he realizes this event. He recalls this event in the record book where this man named Mordecai saved his life. And he says, did we ever do anything for that guy? Did we ever honor him? And they said, no, you never did. And he says, we got to do something. What's a good plan? What can we do to honor him? He says, is there any, anybody in, in the palace tonight that I could talk to and come up with a plan for how to honor this man? And guess, guess who happened to be in the palace at that time? Haman. So he says, tell him to come in here. Haman comes in. He says, I, I, I got an issue I want to think through with you. There's somebody I really want to honor in the kingdom, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to honor. Honor. Haman is so full of himself, Haman thinks he's talking about him. And Haman says, oh, I got a good idea. Treat him like royalty. Like put your royal robes on him and put him on one of your horses and parade him around town and give him a big, a big parade like he's a hero. You know, how does that sound? And the king says, that's a fantastic idea. Look at chapter 6, verses 10, to 10 and 11. I love these verses. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. Can you just see his face? What? The Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Do every bit of the detail you just planned. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It's only two verses, but they're great. They're filled with drama. Haman has just built a hanging gallows to kill Mordecai. That's how much he hates him. And now he's having to be a servant and parade him around town and basically give glory to this man, Mordecai. And so this is what is called poetic justice. It's what's called uh, God's silent sovereignty at work. It's what I'm calling a great reversal. It's a reversal of events. In chapter 7, Esther lets the king know about Haman's plan, and it comes at just the right time. The timing is perfect. It's like if she had done it any time sooner, it's like it might not have worked. But it comes right on the heels of the king honoring Mordecai, the Jew. And the king now finds out that Esther's also Jewish. And he finds out that Haman is planning on killing all the Jews. And so he's really angry because he just honored Mordecai. He's married to a Jew. And so the king leaves the room. He comes back in. And when he comes back in, he sees Haman basically begging the queen for mercy. So he's like down on his knees, you know, perhaps got a grabbing on. Please, please. And all the king sees, he thinks that Haman is attacking the queen. And so Haman says, you're going to attack her too? And they immediately go and take him and execute him. And guess where they execute him? on the very hanging gallows that he created for Mordecai. He gets hanged. He gets executed. Once again, it's poetic justice. In chapter 8, the king issues a new edict and says the Jewish people are not to be killed. And in fact, if anyone tries to kill them, they can defend themselves and fight back and kill, and kill those who try to kill them. And they do, by the way. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. 
I love that phrase. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So the reverse occurred. There was a plot to kill Mordecai. There was a plot to kill all the Jewish people. On the same day, the 13th day of the month, it got reversed. And instead of Mordecai dying, Haman dies. On the very gallows he built. And instead of the Jewish people dying, the Jewish people are able to defend themselves and kill anyone who tries to kill them. And Mordecai says, this is a day of celebration. And he says, let's celebrate. Chapter 9, verse 22. Let's celebrate it as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Notice the reversal. Sorrow to gladness. Morning to holiday, from fasting to feasting. And it was on the same day. And it's, a, it's, a, it's on a holiday that to this day the Jewish people celebrate called Purim. This year it's on March 6th. And the term Purim comes from the word pur, which means to the casting of the lots. It's like to roll the dice. Haman rolled the dice to determine what day this event was going to happen. According to the die, according to the lot, he said it'll be the 13th day of the month. That was the plan for evil. But God took that very day, He took that very evil plan, and He reversed it. And on the very day, Purim, the casting of the lots, God reversed it and executed Haman and, and anyone who, who went against His people. And so we, we, we tend to like stories where there's the miraculous, like the Exodus. And, and, and we love the stories of Jesus and the powerful miracles and even the apostles and the miracles. But most of the time, even in the Bible, most of the time, God works kind of like we see Him working in Esther. It's, it's a silent sovereignty. It's subtle. It it's almost kind of appears kind of behind the scenes. And this can be difficult for us because we're, sometimes we're like, we want to see, we want to see Exodus type of stuff. Like, we want to see parting of water. Why didn't God part the water anymore? Right? We want to see, do I need to switch mics here? It's a great reversal. <laughs> reversal of mics. Are we good? All right, I'm going to keep going. We like to see the miraculous. We like to see the powerful. Um, and, but sometimes, oftentimes, God works according to the subtle, like we see in Esther. And, and I think this should encourage us. It should encourage us as we're reminded. It doesn't mean God is less sovereign. It doesn't mean God is less in control. It doesn't mean God is less concerned. It doesn't mean God is less involved. He's just as sovereign, just as much in control, just as much involved in His plans. We just don't always see it at the time. The people in Esther's day surely didn't see it at the time. When the king is getting drunk in chapter 1 and having a feast and getting rid of the queen, nobody's going, oh wow, look at the sovereignty of God at work in all of this. Right? It's like... I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't realize that. God was working through this to accomplish His purposes and His plans. And He does that today. And like I said, we don't always see it at the time. Now, for those of us who believe it, for those of us who believe God's on the throne working, we know one day we can look back and say, ah, oh, look at how the silent sovereignty of God, look at the hand of God working all of this. Wow. We don't always see it now. But we can trust it now. 
We can trust God's just as in control, just as sovereign, just as much at work to accomplish His plans, though as we look around, it may not look like it. It may not see it. It may not feel like it. Right? So, so anytime there's a setback, from our perspective, it's a setback. A person like a Haman rises to power. And we say, oh no, this isn't good. Or anytime a decision gets made, a law gets passed or rescinded, and we say, that's not right. That's not good. This is injustice. You know, you may be right. It may be injustice. It may not be right. It may not be good. But it doesn't derail us. It doesn't derail God's people because we trust in the silent sovereignty of God. We trust He's in control. So therefore, we don't give up. We don't say, I'm done. Throw in the towel. Take my ball. I'm going home. No. We, we remain in the game faithful. Faithful to the little things. Faithful to doing what we know we're supposed to do. Though the flesh may say, why? You know, it's just utter chaos. It's just meaningless. Take your ball and go home. Why keep being faithful in the little things? I'll tell you why. Because God's still sovereign. He's still on the throne. He's still working His plans. It may be a silent sovereignty, but He's sovereign. We are the people who trust that. And this, this brings us to talk about a second theme that we see in the book. The sovereign king humbles the exalted Today, a part of the celebration of Purim, a part of the tradition is reading the story. And when they read the story, anytime they mention the bad guy's name, Haman, there are kids are given rattles and the kids shake the rattles so that you don't have to hear the name being spoken. That's how bad of a guy he is. And so I considered the idea of handing out rattles today, <laughs> but I thought twice about it. So instead, I'm going to invite you to hiss. <laughs> Yeah, we'll practice it real quick. You can hiss. Anytime I say the name Haman, yeah, you got it. Very good. All right. He, this bad guy, is one of the worst villains in the Bible. And what he does is he exalts himself, and therefore God humbles him. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And Haman, very good, (laughs) recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman (laughs) said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come to the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So notice he's promoting himself. He says, look at all this glory. Look at all of these accolades. Check me out. And then he says, you know what? It all means nothing to me as long as I have to walk by and see Mordecai standing unwilling to bow down before me. Right? A proud person never gets enough glory. A proud person, a person who's proud, a person who's arrogant, they never get enough attention, never get enough glory. And this is the case here. And God absolutely humiliates him. I think it's interesting. God could just take him out. You're done. But he doesn't do that. God humiliates him. He mocks him. He forces him to be paraded through town. Right? And listen to Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord? He who sits in the heaven laughs. God laughs. God laughs at prideful people. It's almost humorous to him. There's almost a comedic element to it. And God could have just taken him out, but God says, you know what? I want you to be the servant of Mordecai, and I want you to walk around the town as his servant, giving him glory. God humiliates him and mocks him. And therefore, I want us to consider, first of all, how we should think about arrogant people. Because we live in a culture that tends to promote arrogant people. You noticed all of our famous people tend to be pretty full of themselves. Our athletes tend to be pretty full of themselves. Right? They get to the end zone and have all kinds of celebration dances and everything. I like how Lou Holt said it. He said, guys, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. <laughs> Don't act like this is such a big deal. You just do this. And these guys, you know, they'll celebrate a first down. <laughs> you picked up 10 yards. You're doing your job. You're doing what you're, you're getting your dude, but you're getting paid millions to do. Go back to the huddle. Let's go. Quit celebrating. But, but all of our famous people, have you noticed they just seem to be pretty big on themselves? Our musicians, our politicians, right? Our uh, actors and actresses. And, 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 and they, we live in a society where they're seen as like the ones who have arrived. Because they're famous. Some of them are famous for being famous. And that's it. Like that's it. They're celebrity because they're famous. And we tend to be interested in them. Like that, that shows how subtly we kind of want to be like them. We're interested in their lives. And therefore, people, they, they, tabloids sell like crazy because people are interested. If I don't hear any more headlines about Prince Harry, I'll be just fine <laughs> for the rest of my life. Like, who cares? Right? But, but there's this temptation that we all have to think, if we could be like them, if we could be famous, if we could have money like them, then wouldn't we be happy? Wouldn't we have arrived? Like, do, do you subtly, deep down, kind of think if you could, could be there, you'd really have what you really want and you'd really be happy? I think, I think subtly there's a lot of us that, that, that have an impulse toward that. And by the way, do you really think they're happy? <laughs> have you read the tabloids? <laughs> have you read about them? They, 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 they don't usually end real well. It doesn't usually end real well for them or for their spouses or for their children or their grandchildren. Look at some of the stories of Elvis Presley and his family. By the way, I saw a headline, I think yesterday, some comment that Prince Harry made about Elvis Presley and Graceland. And I'm like, two things I don't care about. (laughs) But here's the point. It doesn't go well for folks who promote themselves, exalt themselves. God humbles the proud. And this brings me to a second point I want to make. Make sure this is not you. Because pride is universal. It's not just in athletes, musicians, actors, and actresses, and politicians. It's in all of us. It's universal. It's, it's sort of the sin that's behind all sin. C.S. Lewis said it like this. It, it's the sin that made the devil the devil. Pride, I think he also is the one who said it's a spiritual cancer. It's a spiritual cancer that that's universal, that that affects all of us. And it's so bad, we don't even know it. We don't even realize it. We recognize it in others, and we hate it in others. And rightly so. But then we'll say, boy, I sure am glad I'm not prideful like him. And you see why that's a problem? (laughs) I become pretty prideful about the fact that I'm not prideful. I'm really glad I'm not like these famous people. Well, there's pride in that. And that's the problem. Arrogance is... 
Arrogant people don't know they are. The one way you can be confident you're an arrogant person is answer this question, are you arrogant? And if you say no, that's a guarantee you are. It's like the only guarantee. It's a lose-lose situation. If you say yes, then you've just admitted to being arrogant. If you say no, that's telltale that you're number one on the arrogant list. Either way, we're, we're all guilty. And, and none of us really take it that seriously. I don't, in my pastoral ministry, I've never had a person come to me and say, I need to talk to you. I'm really wrestling with pride. Nobody. You know, there's all, people come for all kinds of other problems, sins, issues. Nobody's really concerned about pride. And yet it's the sin behind all sin at some level. It's the sin that's associated with all other sin. Because all sin, when you sin, you're doing it because you don't have a right view of who you are and who God is. Pride is involved in all sin. And, and we're reminded here, the sovereign king humbles the exalted. Listen to how Jesus said it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So this brings us now to talk about the fact that the sovereign king exalts the humble. Esther is exalted in this story. Mordecai is exalted in this story. He's exalted to number two in the land, the Persian Empire. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So at the end of the story, Mordecai is number two in the land. At the beginning of the story, he was targeted by the number two man in the land named Haman. All right, just trying to make sure you're paying attention. And think about why he was targeted. Because he was not willing to bow the knee. Right? He had a right view of God. He had a right view of himself. That's what humility is. Humility is not necessarily having a low view of yourself. That's kind of a popular definition that's not really accurate. It's not having a low view of yourself per se. It's just having a right view of yourself. You rightly see who you are, and you rightly see who God is, and you rightly see who you are in relationship to him. That's humility. Mordecai has humility. And therefore, he's exalted. And if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. But let's talk about why this is so difficult to go and do, to go and apply. Let's talk about why it's so difficult that it's not as simple as me saying, you ought to go humble yourselves. And if you do, God will exalt you. And then you go leave here and you go humble yourself and then God exalts you. It just, it doesn't really work like that. Why not? Because think about it. What if, what if I, go exalt, I go humble myself in a few areas, but really my motivation is to be really good at being humble in those areas? Right? I could become prideful about how humble I am. And that happens very easily. Or what if my motivation is, you mean I get exalted like, like to number two in the land if I just humble myself in a few areas? Sure, I'll, I'll try that. I'll humble myself and then just stand back and wait for that exaltation part. I'm willing to humble myself if it means there's glory in it. This is why it's so challenging. There's a spiritual cancer that's inside of all of us that makes this 
I mean, nearly impossible. Right? And so just like you can't just speak away physical cancer, if you have physical cancer, you don't just speak it away, be gone. In a similar way, if you have spiritual cancer, pride, you can't just speak to it. You can't just muster up enough strength and say, it's going to be gone. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be less proud. I'm going to be more humble. It's gone. Just, it, it doesn't work like that. The solution is something powerful has to happen. Kind of like if you have physical cancer, something powerful has to happen. Right? What, what is it that has to happen? What has to happen is you have to come to see yourself rightly. You have to come to a point to see God rightly and to see yourself before Him rightly. And in order to do that, you have to see Jesus Christ rightly. You have to see who He is. You have to see what He's done. And if you catch a vision, even a glimpse, of who Jesus is and yet what He did, you will catch a glimpse of pure humility. And it can't help but change you if you see it. But you got to come to see it. you got to come to see who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, God in the flesh, the only person who justifiably could put himself forward in order to receive glory. He's the only person that could do it and say, that's right, that's justified, totally justified in exalting himself. He's God. And yet, though God, he chose to humble himself. Incredible. Listen to Philippians 2 beginning in verse 6, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it tightly. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave up everything, including his clothes. And by the way, they... They rolled dice for his clothes. They cast the lot for his clothing, similar to the casting of the lot in the book of Esther. And on this day when Jesus died, this event at the cross, on one hand, is the most awful, worst event in human history. It's the day we crucified the Son of God. It's the day the only innocent person who deserved to be glorified beyond all glory Instead of being glorified, we crucified Him. We killed Him. The only innocent man, God in the flesh, we killed Him. The most humbling, awful, worst day and event in human history. And yet, at the exact same time, it's the greatest, most wonderful day and event in human history. Why? Because God reversed it. And God was in control, and God was taking the worst event, and and, and also at the same time it became the greatest event, the cross. It's what we glory in. We glory in the cross. You glory in an uh, instrument of execution. You glory in the day that's the worst day in human history. Yes, because God is sovereign, and He reversed it for His purposes. And we actually call that day Good Friday. It's a good day. Though at the same time, it's the worst day. And this event at the cross where love and sorrow meet became the place where we can experience a great reversal. Not only did God turn it into a great reversal for good, for His purposes, God can use it in your life for a great reversal. And this event can be changed for you from sorrow to gladness, mourning to holiday, fasting to feasting, Chains to freedom, slaves to sons, 
death to life. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He conquered the grave. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The story of Esther is an incredible story about an incredible reversal, but it is pointing us to the story about the reversal. And it's a reversal you can experience in your life. And the good news for you is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what direction you're heading, God will use it in your life to bring about a great reversal. Say, how do I experience that? It's very simple. You just look to Jesus. And you just look to Jesus until you get it that though He was God who deserved all glory, He didn't cling to it, but He set it aside. And He humbled Himself and became a servant. He became publicly humiliated in a public spectacle on a wooden beam across. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And He did that for you. And you just consider that until you can't help but be moved to humility yourself, until it melts your heart. The spiritual cancer will melt away if you come to have a right view of Jesus Christ. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die. That sounds like bad news. No, and find that I might truly live. Go to Jesus and live. Let's pray.